Book One, Chapter Nine of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Nine. Robert was very nearly reduced to despair by the scene with Catherine we have described. He spent a brooding and miserable hour in the vicar's study afterwards, making up his mind as to what he should do. One phrase of hers which had passed almost unnoticed in the shock of the moment was now ringing in his ears, maddening him by a sense of joy just within his reach, and yet barred away from him by an obstacle as strong as it was intangible. "'We are not here only to be happy,' she had said to him, with a look of ethereal exultation worthy of her namesake of Alexandria. The words had slipped from her involuntarily in the spiritual tension of her mood. They were now filling Robert Ellesmere's mind with a tormenting, torturing bliss. What could they mean? What had her paleness, her evident trouble and weakness meant, but that that innermost self of hers was his, was conquered, and that, but for the shadowy obstacle between them, all would be well? As for the obstacle in itself, he did not admit its force for a moment. No sane and practical man, least of all when that man happened to be Catherine Leyburn's lover, could regard it as a binding obligation upon her that she should sacrifice her own life and happiness to three persons who were in no evident moral straits, no physical or pecuniary need, and who, as Rose incoherently put it, might very well be rather braced than injured by the withdrawal of her strong support. But the obstacle of character—ah, there was a different matter. He realised with despair the brooding, scrupulous force of moral passion to which her lonely life her antecedents, and her father's nature working in her, had given so rare a mark to her development. No temper in the world is so little open to reason as the ascetic temper. How many a lover and husband, how many a parent and friend, have realised to their pain, since history began, the overwhelming attraction which all the processes of self-annihilation have for a certain order of minds? Robert's heart sank, before the memory of that frail, indomitable look, that aspect of sad yet immovable conviction with which she had bade him farewell. And yet surely, surely, under the willingness of the spirit, there had been a pitiful, a most womanly weakness of the flesh. Surely, now memory reproduced the scene, she had been white, trembling. Her hand had rested on the moss-grown wall beside her for support. Oh, why had he been so timid? Why had he let that awe of her, which her personality produced so readily, stand between them? Why had he not boldly caught her to himself, and with all the eloquence of a passionate nature, trampled on her scruples, marched through her doubts, convinced, reasoned her, into a blessed submission? "'And I will do it yet,' he cried, leaping to his feet with a sudden access of hope and energy. And he stood a while looking out into the rainy evening, all the keen, irregular face and thin, pliant form hardening into the intensity of resolve which had so often carried the young tutor through an Oxford difficulty, breaking down antagonism and compelling consent. At the high tea which represented the late dinner of the household, he was wary and self-possessed. Mrs. Thornburg got out of him that he had been for a walk and had seen Catherine, but for all her ingenuities of cross-examination she got nothing more. Afterwards, when he and the vicar were smoking together, he proposed to Mr. Thornburg that they two should go off for a couple of days on a walking tour to Arlswater. "'I want to go away,' he said, with a hand on the vicar's shoulder. 
and I want to come back.' The deliberation of the last words was not to be mistaken. The vicar emitted a contented puff, looked the young man straight in the eyes, and without another word began to plan a walk to Patterdale, via High Street, Martindale, and Houghton, and back by Horsewater. To Mrs. Thornburg, Robert announced that he must leave them on the following Saturday, June the 24th. "'You have given me a good time, Cousin Emma,' he said to her, with a bright friendliness which dumbfounded her. "'A good time, indeed, with everything begun and nothing finished, with two households thrown into perturbation for a delusion, and a desirable marriage spoilt, all for want of a little common sense and plain speaking, which one person at least in the valley could have supplied them with, had she not been ignored and browbeaten on all sides. She contained herself, however, in his presence, but the vicar suffered proportionately in the privacy of the connubial chamber. He had never seen his wife so exasperated. To think what might have been, what she might have done for the race, but for the whims of two stuck-up, superior, impracticable young persons that would neither manage their own affairs nor allow other people to manage them for them. The vicar behaved gallantly, kept the secret of Ellesmere's remark to himself like a man, and allowed himself certain counsels against matrimonial meddling which plunged Mrs. Thornburg into well-simulated slumber. However, in the morning he was vaguely conscious that some time in the visions of the night his spouse had demanded of him peremptorily, "'When do you get back, William?' To the best of his memory the vicar had sleepily murmured, "'Thursday,' and had then heard, echo through his dreams, a calculating whisper, "'He goes Saturday, one clear day.' The following morning was gloomy but fine, and after breakfast the vicar and Ellesmere started off. Robert turned back at the top of the high fell pass, and stood leaning on his alpenstock, sending a passionate farewell to the grey distant house, the upper window, the copper beech in the garden, the bit of winding road, while the vicar discreetly stepped on northward, his eyes fixed on the wild regions of Martindale. Mrs. Thornburg, left alone, absorbed herself to all appearance in the school treat which was to come off in a fortnight, in a new set of covers for the drawing-room, and in Sarah's love affairs, which were always passing through some tragic phase or other, and into which Mrs. Thornburg was allowed a more unencumbered view than she was into Catherine Leyburn's. Rose and Agnes dropped in now and then, and found her not at all disposed to talk to them of the great event of the day, Ellesmere's absence and approaching departure. They cautiously communicated to her their own suspicions as to the incident of the preceding afternoon, and Rose gave vent to one fiery onslaught on the moral obstacle theory, during which Mrs. Thornburg sat studying her with small attentive eyes and curls slowly waving from side to side. But for once in her life the vicar's wife was not communicative in return. That the situation should have driven even Mrs. Thornburg to finesse was a surprising testimony to its gravity. What between her sudden taciturnity and Catherine's pale silence, the girl's sense of expectancy was roused to its highest pitch. "'They come back to-morrow night?' said Rose thoughtfully, and he goes Saturday, ten-twenty from Winborough, one day for the fifth act. By the way, why did Mrs. Thornburg ask us to say nothing about Saturday at home? She had asked them, however, and with a pleasing sense of conspiracy they complied. It was late on Thursday afternoon when Mrs. Thornburg, finding the Burwood front door open, made her unchallenged way into the hall, and after an unanswered knock at the drawing-room door, opened it and peered in to see who might be there. "'May I come in?' Mrs. Leyburn, who was a trifle deaf, 
was sitting by the window, absorbed in the intricacies of heel which seemed to her more than she could manage. Her card was mislaid, the girls were none of them at hand, and she felt as helpless as she commonly did when left alone. Uh, "'Do you come in, please? So glad to see you. Have you been nearly blown away?' For though the rain had stopped, a boisterous northwest wind was still rushing through the valley, and the trees round Burwood were swaying and groaning under the force of its onslaught. "'Well, it is stormy,' said Mrs. Thornburg, stepping in and undoing all the various safety-pins and elastics which had held her dress high above the mud. "'Are the girls out?' "'Yes. Catherine and Agnes are at the school, and Rose, I think, is practising. "'Ah, well,' said Mrs. Thornburg, setting herself in a chair close by her friend, "'I wanted to find you alone.' Her face, framed in bushy curls and an old garden bonnet, was flushed and serious. Her mittened hands were clasped nervously on her lap, and there was about her such an air of forcibly restrained excitement that Mrs. Laban's mild eyes gazed at her with some astonishment. The two women were a curious contrast. Mrs. Thornburg, short, inclined, as we know, to be stout, ample and abounding in all things, whether it were curls or cap-strings or conversation. Mrs. Laban, tall and well-proportioned, well-dressed, with the same graceful ways and languid pretty manners, as at first attracted her husband's attention thirty years before. She was fond of Mrs. Thornburg, but there was something in the ebullient energies of the vicar's wife which always gave her a sense of bustle and fatigue. "'I am sure you will be sorry to hear,' began her visitor, "'that Mr. Ellesmere is going.' "'Going?' said Mrs. Leyburn, laying down her knitting. "'Why, I thought he was going to stay with you another ten days at least.' "'So did I. So did he,' said Mrs. Thornburg, nodding, and then pausing with a most effective air of sudden gravity and recollection. "'Then wh wh what's the matter?' asked Mrs. Leyburn, wondering. Mrs. Thornburg did not answer for a minute, and Mrs. Leyburn began to feel a little nervous. Her visitor's eyes were fixed upon her with so much meaning. Urged by a sudden impulse, she bent forward. So did Mrs. Thornburg, and their two elderly heads nearly touched. "'The young man is in love,' said the vicar's wife, in a stage whisper, drawing back after a pause to see the effect of her announcement. "'Oh, with whom?' asked Mrs. Leyburn, her look brightening. She liked a love affair as much as ever. Mrs. Thornburg furtively looked round to see if the door was shut and all safe. She felt herself a criminal, but the sense of guilt had an exhilarating rather than depressing effect upon her. "'Have you guessed nothing?' "'Have the girls told you anything?' "'No,' said Mrs. Laban, her eyes opening wider and wider. She never guessed anything. There was no need, with three daughters, to think for her and give her the benefit of their young brains. "'No,' she said again. "'I can't imagine what you mean.' Mrs. Thornburg felt a rush of inward contempt for so much obtuseness. "'Well, then, he is in love with Catherine,' she said abruptly laying her hand on Mrs. Leyburn's knee, and watching the effect. "'With, with Catherine?' stammered Mrs. Leyburn. "'With Catherine?' The idea was amazing to her. She took up her knitting with trembling fingers, and went on with it mechanically a second or two. Then, laying it down, "'Are you quite sure? Has he told you?' "'No, but one has eyes,' said Mrs. Thornburg hastily. 
William and I have seen it from the very first day, and we're both certain that on Tuesday she made him understand in some way or other that she wouldn't marry him, and that is why he went off to Arlswater, and why he made up his mind to go south before his time is up.' "'Tuesday?' cried Mrs. Lowburn. "'In that walk, do you mean when Cathy looked so tired afterwards? You think he proposed in that walk?' She was in a maze of bewilderment and excitement. "'Something like it. But if he did, she said no.' And what I want to know is why she said no. Why, of course, because she didn't care for him, exclaimed Mrs. Laban, opening her blue eyes wider and wider. Catherine's not like most girls. She would always know what she felt, and would never keep a man in suspense. Well, I don't somehow believe, said Mrs. Thorberg boldly, that she doesn't care for him. He's just the young man Catherine might care for. You can see that yourself. Mrs. Laban once more laid down her knitting and stared at her visitor. Mrs. Thornburg, after all her meditations, had no very precise idea as to why she was at that moment in the Burwood drawing-room, bombarding Mrs. Laban in this fashion. All she knew was that she had sallied forth determined somehow to upset the situation, just as one gives a shake purposely to a bundle of spillikins on the chance of more favourable openings. Mrs. Laban's mind was just now playing the part of spillikins and the vicar's wife was shaking it vigorously, though with occasional qualms as to the lawfulness of the process. "'You you think Catherine does care for him?' resumed Mrs. Laban tremulously. "'Well, isn't he just the kind of man one would suppose Catherine would like?' repeated Mrs. Thornburg persuasively. "'He is a clergyman, and she likes serious people, and he's sensible and nice and well-mannered. And then he can talk about books, just like her father used. I'm sure William thinks he knows everything.' He isn't as nice-looking as he might be just now, but then that's his hair and his fever, poor man. And then he isn't hanging about. He's got a living, and there be the poor people already, and everything else Catherine likes. And now I'll just ask you, did you ever see Catherine more—more lively? Well, I know that's not just the word, but you know what I mean, than she has been the last fortnight? But Mrs. Laban only shook her head helplessly. She did not know in the least what Mrs. Thornburg meant. She never thought Catherine doleful, and she agreed that certainly lively was not the word. "'Girls get so frightfully particular nowadays,' continued the vicar's wife, with reflective candour. "'Why, when William fell in love with me, I just fell in love with him, at once, because he did. And if it hadn't been William, but somebody else, it would have been the same. I don't believe girls have got hearts like pebbles, if the man's nice, of course.' Mrs. Laban listened to this summary of matrimonial philosophy with the same yielding, flurried attention as she was always disposed to give to the last speaker. "'But,' she said, still in amaze, "'if she did care for him, why should she send him away?' "'Because she won't have him,' said Mrs. Thornburg energetically, leaning over the arm of her chair that she might bring herself nearer to her companion. The fatuity of the answer left Mrs. Laban staring. "'because she won't have him, my dear Mrs. Laban, "'and I'm sure nothing would make me interfere like this "'if I weren't so fond of you all, "'and if William and I didn't know for certain "'that there never was a better young man born. "'Then I was just sure you'd be the last person in the world, "'if you knew, to stand in young people's way.' "'I?' cried poor Mrs. Laban. "'I stand in the way?' "'She was getting tremulous and tearful, "'and Mrs. Thornburg felt herself a brute. "'Well,' she said, plunging on desperately, I've been thinking over it night and day. I've been watching him, 
and I've been talking to the girls, and I've been putting two and two together, and I'm just about sure that there might be a chance for Robert if only Catherine didn't feel that you and the girls couldn't get on without her.' Mrs. Laban took up her knitting again with agitated fingers. She was so long in answering that Mrs. Thornburg sat and thought with trepidation of all sorts of unpleasant consequences which might result from this audacious move of hers. "'I don't know how we should get on,' cried Mrs. Laban at last, with a sort of suppressed sob, while something very like a tear fell on the stocking she held. Mrs. Thornburg was still more frightened, and rushed into a flood of apologetic speech. Very likely she was wrong, perhaps it was all a mistake, she was afraid she had done some harm, and so on. Mrs. Laban took very little heed, but at last she said, looking up and applying a soft handkerchief gently to her eyes, "'Is his mother nice? Where's his living? Would he want to be married soon?' The voice was weak and tearful, but there was in it unmistakable eagerness to be informed. Mrs. Thornburg, overjoyed, let loose upon her a flood of particulars, painted the virtues and talents of Mrs. Ellesmere, described Robert's Oxford career with an admirable sense for effect, and a truly feminine capacity for murdering every university detail, drew pictures of the Muirwell living and rectory, of which Robert had photographs with him, threw in adroit information about the young man's private means, and in general showed what may be made of a woman's mind under the stimulus of one of the occupations most proper to it. Mrs. Laban brightened visibly as the flood proceeded. Alas, poor Catherine! How little room there is for the heroic in this trivial everyday life of ours! Catherine a bride, Catherine a wife and mother! Dim visions of a white soft morsel in which Catherine's eyes and smiles should live again! All these thoughts were trembling and flashing through Mrs. Leyburn's mind as she listened to Mrs. Thornburg. There is so much of the artist in the maternal mind, of the artist who longs to see the work of his hand in fresh combinations and under all points of view. Catherine, in the heat of her own self-surrender, had perhaps forgotten that her mother, too, had a heart. "'Yes, it all sounds very well,' said Mrs. Leyburn at last, sighing. "'But, you know, Catherine isn't easy to manage.' "'Could you talk to her? Find out a little?' "'Well, not to-day. I, I shall hardly see her. Doesn't it seem to you that when a girl takes up notions like Catherine's, she hasn't time for thinking about young men? Why, she's as full of business all day long as an egg's full of meat.' Well, it was my poor Richard's doing. It was his doing, bless him. I'm not going to say anything against it, but it was different once. Yes, I know, said Mrs. Thornburg thoughtfully. One had plenty of time, when you and I were young, to sit at home and think what one was going to wear, and how one would look, and whether he had been paying attention to anyone else, and if he had, why, and all that. And now the young women are all so superior. But the marrying has got to be done somehow, all the same. What is she doing to-day?' Oh, she'll be busy all day and to-morrow. I, I hardly expect to see her till Saturday. Mrs. Thornburg gave a start of dismay. Well, what is the matter now? she cried in her most aggrieved tones. My dear Mrs. Laban, one would think we had the cholera in the parish. Catherine just spoils the people. Don't you remember, said Mrs. Laban, staring in her turn and drawing herself up a little, that to-day is Midsummer Day, and that Mary Backhouse is as bad as she can be. "'Mary Backhouse! Why, I had forgotten all about her!' cried the vicar's wife, with sudden remorse. And she sat pensively, eyeing the carpet a while. Then she got what particulars she could out of Mrs. Laban. Catherine, it appeared, was at the moment at High Gill, was not to return till late, 
and would be with the dying girl through the greater part of the following day, returning for an hour or two's rest in the afternoon, and staying in the evening till the twilight, in which the ghost always made her appearances, should have passed into the night. Mrs. Thornburg listened to it all, her contriving mind working the while at railway speed on the facts presented to her. "'How do you get her home to-morrow night?' she asked with sudden animation. Uh, "'We send our man Richard at ten. He takes a lantern if it's dark.' Mrs. Thornburg said no more. Her eyes and gestures were all alive again with energy and hope. She had given her shake to Mrs. Leyburn's mind. Much good might it do. But after all she had the poorest opinion of the widow's capacities as an ally. She and her companion said a few more excited, affectionate, and apologetic things to one another, and then she departed. Both mother and knitting were found by Agnes half an hour later in a state of considerable confusion. But Mrs. Leyburn kept her own counsel, having resolved for once, with a timid and yet delicious excitement, to act as the head of the family. Meanwhile Mrs. Thornburg was laying plans on her own account. Ten o'clock, moonlight,' said that contriving person to herself, going home. "'At least if the clouds hold up. That'll do. Couldn't be better.' To any person familiar with her character, the signs of some unusual preoccupation were clear enough in Mrs. Leyburn during this Thursday evening. Catherine noticed them at once when she got back from High Gill about eight o'clock, and wondered first of all what was the matter, and then, with more emphasis, why the trouble was not immediately communicated to her. It had never entered into her head to take her mother into her confidence with regard to Ellesmere. Since she could remember, it had been an axiom in the family to spare the delicate, nervous mother all the anxieties and perplexities of life. It was a system in which the subject of it had always acquiesced with perfect contentment, and Catherine had no qualms about it. If there was good news, it was presented in its most sugared form to Mrs. Leyburn. But the moment any element of pain and difficulty had cropped up in the common life, it was pounced upon and appropriated by Catherine, aided and abetted by the girls, and Mrs. Leyburn knew no more about it than an unweaned babe. So that Catherine was thinking at most of some misconduct of a Perth dyer with regard to her mother's best grey poplin, when one of the greatest surprises of her life burst upon her. She was in Mrs. Leyburn's bedroom that night, helping to put away her mother's things, as her custom was. She had just taken off the widow's cap, caressing as she did so the brown hair underneath, which was still soft and plentiful, when Mrs. Leyburn turned upon her. "'Catherine!' she said in an agitated voice, laying a thin hand on her daughter's arm. "'Oh, Catherine, I, I want to speak to you.' Catherine knelt lightly down by her mother's side, and put her arms round her waist. "'Yes, mother darling,' she said, half smiling. "'Oh, Catherine, I I if you like Mr. Ellsmere, don't mind, don't, don't think about us, dear. We can manage, we can manage, dear.' The change that took place in Catherine Laban's face is indescribable. She rose instantly, her arms falling behind her, her beautiful brows drawn together. Mrs. Laban looked up at her with a pathetic mixture of helplessness, alarm, entreaty. "'Mother, who's been talking to you about Mr. Ellesmere and me?' demanded Catherine. "'Oh, oh never mind, dear, never mind,' said the widow hastily. "'I, I should have seen it myself. Oh, I know I should, but I'm, I'm a bad mother, Catherine.' and she caught her daughter's dress and drew her towards her. "'Do you care for him?' Catherine did not answer. 
She knelt down again and laid her head on her mother's hands. "'I want nothing,' she said presently, in a low voice of intense emotion. "'I want nothing but you and the girls. You are my life. I ask for nothing more. I am abundantly content.' Mrs. Laban gazed down on her with infinite perplexity. The brown hair escaped from the cap had fallen about her still pretty neck. A pink spot of excitement was on each gently hollowed cheek. She looked almost younger than her pale daughter. "'But he is very nice,' she said timidly. "'And he has a good living. Catherine, you ought to be a clergyman's wife.' "'I ought to be, and I am your daughter,' said Catherine, smiling a little with an unsteady lip and kissing her hand. Mrs. Laban sighed and looked straight before her. Perhaps in imagination she saw the vicar's wife. "'I think, I think,' she said very seriously, "'I should like it.' Catherine straightened herself brusquely at that. It was as though she had felt a blow. "'Mother!' she cried with a stifled accent of pain, and yet still trying to smile. "'Do you want to send me away?' "'No, no,' cried Mrs. Laban hastily. "'But if a nice man wants you to marry him, Catherine?' "'Your father would have liked him. Oh, I know your father would have liked him. And his manners to me are so pretty, I, I shouldn't mind being his mother-in-law. And the girls have no brother, you know, dear. Your, your father was always so sorry about that.' She spoke with pleading agitation, her own tempting imaginations, the pallor, the latent storm of Catherine's look, exciting her more and more. Catherine was silent a moment. Then she caught her mother's hand again. "'Dear little mother, dear kind little mother, you are an angel, you always are. But I think, if you'll keep me, I'll stay.' And she once more rested her head clingingly on Mrs. Leyburn's knee. "'But do you, do you love him, Catherine?' "'I love you, mother, and the girls, and my life here.' "'Oh, dear,' sighed Mrs. Leyburn, as though addressing a third person, the tears in her mild eyes. She won't, and she would like it, and so should I. Catherine rose, stung beyond bearing. And, and, and I come for nothing to you, mother? Her deep voice quivering. You could put me aside, you and the girls, and live as though I had never been. But you would be a great deal to us if you did marry, Catherine, cried Mrs. Laban, almost with an accent of pettishness. People have to do without their daughters. There's Agnes. I often think, as it is, you, you might let her do more. And if Rose were troublesome, why, you know, it might be a good thing, a, a very good thing, if there were a man to take her in hand. And you, mother, without me? cried poor Catherine, choked. Oh, I, I should come and see you, said Mrs. Laban, brightening. They said it's such a nice house, Catherine, and such pretty country. And I'm sure I'd like his mother, though she is Irish. It was the bitterest moment of Catherine Leyburn's life. In it the heroic dream of years broke down. Nay, the shrivelling ironic tone of circumstance laid upon it made it look, even in her own eyes, almost ridiculous. What had she been living for, praying for, all these years? She threw herself down by the widow's side, her face working with a passion that terrified Mrs. Leyburn. "'Oh, mother, say you would miss me, say you would miss me if I went!' Then Mrs. Laban herself broke down, and the two women clung to each other, weeping. 
Catherine's sore heart was soothed a little by her mother's tears, and by the broken words of endearment that were lavished on her. But through it all she felt that the excited imaginative desire in Mrs. Loban still persisted. It was the cheapening, the vulgarising, so to speak, of her whole existence. In the course of their long embrace Mrs. Laban let fall various items of news that showed Catherine very plainly who had been at work upon her mother, and one of which startled her. "'He comes back to-night, my dear, and he goes on Saturday. Oh, and Catherine, Mrs. Thornburg says he does care so much. Poor young man!' And Mrs. Laban looked up at her now standing daughter with eyes as woebegone for Ellesmere as for herself. "'Don't talk about it any more, mother,' Catherine implored. You won't sleep, and I should be more wroth with Mrs. Thornburg than I am already. Mrs. Laban let herself be gradually soothed and coerced, and Catherine, with a last kiss to the delicate emaciated fingers on which the warm wedding ring lay slipping forward, in itself a history, left her at last to sleep. And I don't know much more than when I began, sighed the perplexed widow to herself. Oh, I wish Richard was here, I do. Catherine's night was a night of intense mental struggle. Her struggle was one with which the modern world has perhaps but scant sympathy. Instinctively we feel such things out of place in our easy, dim-different generation. We think them more than half unreal. We are so apt to take it for granted that the world has outgrown the religious thirst for sanctification, for a perfect moral consistency, as it has outgrown so many of the older complications of the sentiment of honour. And meanwhile, half the tragedy of our time lies in this perpetual clashing of two estimates of life. The estimate, which is the offspring of the scientific spirit, and which is forever making the visible world fairer and more desirable in mortal eyes, and the estimate of St. Augustine. As a matter of fact, owing to some travelling difficulties, the vicar and Ellesmere did not get home till noon on Friday. Catherine knew nothing of either delay or arrival. Mrs. Laban watched her with anxious timidity, but she never mentioned Ellesmere's name to anyone on the Friday morning, and no one dared speak of him to her. She came home in the afternoon from the back-houses, absorbed apparently in the state of the dying girl, took a couple of hours' rest, and hurried off again. She passed the vicarage with bent head, and never looked up. "'She's gone,' said Rose to Agnes, as she stood at the window, looking after her sister's retreating figure. "'It's all over.' They can't meet now. He'll be off by nine to-morrow. The girl spoke with a lump in her throat, and flung herself down by the window, moodily watching the dark form against the fells. Catherine's coldness seemed to make all life colder and more chilling, to fling a hard denial in the face of the dearest claims of earth. The stormy light of the afternoon was fading towards sunset. Catherine walked on fast, towards the group of houses at the head of the valley, in one of which lived the two old carriers who had worked such havoc with Mrs. Thornburg's housekeeping arrangements. She was tired physically, but she was still more tired mentally. She had the bruised feeling of one who has been humiliated before the world and before herself. Her self-respect was for the moment crushed, and the breach made in the wholeness of personal dignity had produced a strange slackness of nerve, extending both the body and mind. She had been convicted, it seemed to her, in her own eyes and in those of the world, of an egregious overestimate of her own value. She walked with hung head like one ashamed, the overstrung religious sense deepening her discomfiture at every step. How rich her life had always been in the conviction of usefulness, nay, indispensableness! 
her mother's persuasions had dashed it from her. And religious scruple for her torment showed her her past transformed, alloyed with all sorts of personal prides and cravings, which stood unmasked now in a white light. And he, still near her for a few short hours. Every pulse in her had thrilled as she had passed the house which sheltered him, but she will see him no more, and she is glad. If he had stayed on, he too would have discovered how cheaply they held her, those dear ones of hers for whom she had lived till now, and she might have weakly yielded to his pity what she had refused to his homage. The strong nature is half-tortured, half-soothed by the prospect of his going. Perhaps when he is gone she will recover something of that moral equilibrium which has been so shaken. At present she is a riddle to herself, invaded by a force she has no power to cope with, feeling the moral ground of years crumbling beneath her, and struggling feverishly for self-control. As she neared the head of the valley, the wind became less tempestuous. The great wall of high fell towards which she was walking seemed to shelter her from its worst violence. But the hurrying clouds, the gleams of lurid light which every now and then penetrated into the valley from the west, across the dip leading to Shanmore, the voice of the river answering the voice of the wind, and the deep unbroken shadow that covered the group of houses and trees towards which she was walking, all served to heighten the nervous depression which had taken hold of her. As she neared the bridge, however, leading to the little hamlet, beyond which northwards all was stony loneliness and desolation, and saw in front of her the grey stone house, backed by the sombre red of a great copper beech, and overhung by crags. She had, perforce, to take herself by both hands, try and realise her mission afresh, and the scene which lay before her. End of Book One, Chapter Nine